All right, here at Meadowbrook, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. And we are focusing on doing that upwardly in our connection, our communion with God, inwardly as God does his work in us to change us, and outwardly as we look to people around us and the world around us and seek to treat and love people as Jesus did. It's all about Jesus here at Meadowbrook Church. It's all about Jesus. The other day, we were getting ready for bed, and Sarah said to me, I was going to tell you something today, uh, but actually I forgot what it was. It's out of my head. And I said, said as a joke, oh, were you going to tell me that I was the best thing that ever happened to you? And Sarah said, I wasn't going to tell you that. But she said, but you are the best thing that ever happened to me. And I said, ah, better than Jesus, Sarah? Mm, that's, that's blasphemy, I think. So we're really all about Jesus here at Meadowbrook Church, and we are wanting to know him better. We're wanting to know his word better. We're wanting to be more like him. We're wanting to walk in his ways. We are wanting to follow after him and put him at the center of everything. And so we're going to jump into a new series today. And as we do, take a look at this picture here. So without thinking too much, do you see a duck or do you see a rabbit? How many people's first instinct was duck? How many people's first instinct was rabbit? Yeah, so more duck than rabbit. I think this picture does skew a little more duck than rabbit. But there are pictures out there, and uh, I remember a picture like this from my childhood. It was talking about optical illusions, right? There are sometimes you can look at something and see it in two different ways, even though it is the same drawing. And so there's a picture floating around the internet as well. It's like, oh, do you see an old woman in a head covering, or do you see a young woman who's kind of in a more stylish uh, look? And so, you know, once you see it and it's been explained to you, you go, oh, I can actually see both sides. But one of the points of the exercise is they say once you've seen it one way, your brain kind of naturally goes to that every time you look at it. So if you saw a duck first, now every time you're looking at it, you see the duck. But if you look hard, you go, okay, now I see the rabbit if you look at it from the other side, and vice versa. So our brain kind of locks into one side of this, and you can stretch it to see the other side, but you always kind of have a default where you go to the thing that you saw and understood at first. So, as we jump into this series, we're going to be talking about Jesus, because we're all about Jesus here at Meadowbrook Church. When it comes to the Lord God that we serve, we serve a God who is perfectly holy, perfect in his holiness, beautiful in his holiness, a God who does not sin, who does not know sin, a God who is perfect in his character, perfect in his nature, a God who is perfectly holy in every way. We also serve a God who is love, Scripture says. He is love just personified. He is the fullness of love. He shows the fullness of his love in many, many different ways. God can never not be holy, and God can never not be loving. He is those things together at the same time. Now, what I have found, what tends to happen when we start talking about God's holiness and his love, is that most of us tend to kind of lean one way or lean the other, it, just in what we emphasize. We would acknowledge both, but we would emphasize one over the other. And so there are people who who would just kind of lean towards God's holiness as kind of maybe the most important thing we should focus on. And there are those who would lean on God's love as maybe the most important thing. Again, both acknowledging that both are biblical, but we just kind of naturally lean one way or the other. And so I have found over my, my time in ministry, sometimes uh, I will preach a sermon and I'll get criticized from both sides. 
where the people who kind of lean towards holiness will say, well, maybe you're being too soft on sin or you're not hitting sin hard enough or you're not talking about it enough. The people who lean on the love side worry, well, maybe that's too judgmental. Maybe you're hitting sin too hard and maybe you're not. So, I mean, you just can't win, right? And so the reason why I I sometimes can get criticized from both sides is because I am trying to hold both of those things together at the same time. I'm really trying not to emphasize one or the other. We believe God is fully holy, and we believe God is fully love. We believe that God hates sin and calls us to holiness, and we believe God loves us more than we can possibly imagine at the same time. So what do we do with all of that then? How do we hold these things together? Because it's really, really easy to get God up on the sin side of things and, and wanting to make sure that we're living the way God wants us to live and that other people are living the way that God calls us to live, and we focus on that holiness piece, and we can miss out on the love side and we're not treating people the way that God would want us to treat people. We're judgmental and we're condemning and we're not loving people the way they need to be loved. On the flip side, we can emphasize the love side and then start to not really think about sin or not really care about sin or at least not make it as important as the love. We just need to love people and we're not even going to touch the sin part. Both of those extremes are mistakes. We're really trying to hold those things together. So how do we hold those things together? How do we know what to do? Well, God has given us a Jesus to show us what that looks like. So we're starting a new series today called Jesus and the Sinners. And we're just going to look at different stories in the gospel where Jesus encounters people in their sin. And what does he do? How does he react? And, and what is his, his response? What does he call them to? How does he interact with them? And what does that have to teach us about who Jesus is? What does that have to teach us about our own sin? What does that have to teach us about other people around us who we see in sin and how we are to engage with them? So we're just trying to center in on Jesus and Jesus who never sinned, Jesus who never encouraged sin, who never called people to sin, Jesus who called people away from sin, who called people to follow after him, to follow in the ways of the Lord, and yet Jesus who loved people in such a radical way that people who were lost in sin were drawn to him, unlike most Christians. Right? Most of us do not have the sinners around us coming to us, you know, desperate to know what we're, we're all about. And so there's something we've missed in, in how we are treating other people. And so when I say Jesus and the sinners, the tendency is to be like, oh, well, those other people who are in sin. No, it's you and me, too. Right? We're all in that group. So what is this going to teach us about our sin? What is it going to teach us about how we engage with people who are, uh, who are in sin themselves, especially those maybe who don't know the Lord yet? How are we engage with them? We're going to tackle all of those things over the coming weeks. There's a quote I've shared with you many times, and I probably always will because I love it so much. It comes to us from Philip Yancey. Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. Oh, I love it so much. Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. We are very, very good at justifying our own stuff while not extending that same grace to other people. We are very, very good at going, yes, I know I'm a sinner, but, and then all of our excuses start rolling out. We don't extend those same excuses to people who sin in things that we don't struggle with. And so we are called first and foremost when it comes to sin to look at ourselves, which we'll get to as we go through today. And yes, we are called to engage with others who are sinning as well. And there's a response that Jesus calls us to there. But we want to be careful that we're not doing this. Because I I wrote a blog post for my blog earlier in the year that talked about the church might not be the most merciful organization on earth. It should be, but it might not be. I said, I think maybe the most merciful organization on earth is Alcoholics Anonymous. 
because I know people who've gone through that program and I've seen that program in action and that's a program where everybody there is having the same struggle and because they're having the same struggle, they're still calling it a struggle, they're still calling it a problem, they're not, they're not okay with alcoholism and all of the damage that it can do, but because they all share the struggle, there's a tremendous amount of compassion and encouragement for one another because they all get it. They all understand what the struggle feels like, they understand what the battle is like, they understand how hard it is and so there's a tremendous amount of grace extended to one another and they really do help each other through it. If there is a sin that is not your struggle personally, then it's hard to do that, right? I don't understand what that struggle feels like. And we lose some of our compassion. We lose some of our empathy. And so we want to be careful we're not doing this. We're not just getting mad at the sins that we don't commit that we don't know what the struggle is, that we don't know what that daily battle feels like. We're not getting self-righteous. We're not getting judgmental. We also don't want to go to the other extreme where we're just saying, well, sin's not a thing, right? Because the Bible is very clear that sin is a thing that we should be pulling away from and choosing purity. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Matthew chapter 9. This story is just going to kick off our series today. And we're starting in verse 9. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So when it's talking about sinners here, it's really getting at uh, the people who aren't walking with God, right? Because we are all sinners. So it's not that these people are uh, are sinners and the Pharisees aren't sinners. It's not that there's, you know, there's a, a hierarchy of what sin is, but it's probably referring to that these are people who just don't know the Lord or aren't walking with the Lord. They're not trying to walk with the Lord. So they're not acknowledging their sin. They're not trying to acknowledge their sin. And so that's where Jesus is spending his time. Uh, Of all the places he can be, he goes right there. And so when we talk about God's holiness, when we talk about his love, when we put those things together, part of what comes out is this idea of sin and what is sin and what is not. And so we believe that the Bible shows us what sin is. And yet when we put that together, God's holiness and his love, we understand that there is a God who has a standard. There is behavior that is good and there's behavior that is not good. But in his love, when God sets a boundary up, it's not because he's trying to ruin our fun. It's not because he's trying to be a a buzzkill. It's not because he's trying to be difficult. There are certain things that God says do not do because they're bad for us. Right? Like any parent, there's behavior that's not good. There's behavior that is dangerous. There's behavior that hurts. And so as any parent would say, we're going to have some boundaries and we're going to put some things up. And it's not because we're trying to be all about the boundaries or it's not motivated by the fact that we're trying to make you not do things. It's because we're trying to keep you safe, ultimately. Every boundary a parent sets up is to try and keep their kids safe. Every boundary that God sets up is to try and keep his kids safe. So there are behaviors that hurt us. There are behaviors that are bad for our hearts. There are behaviors that are bad for our minds. There are behaviors that cause damage in our relationships. There are behaviors that pull us away from God. There are behaviors that just do all sorts of damage in all sorts of different ways. And so God sets up commandments and boundaries and says, don't do those things. They are not good for you. My way is better. Holiness is better. Purity is better. If you've had this experience, it might just be me, but I doubt it. Uh, Coming into the new year, 
and you say, I'm getting healthy again, right? Coming out of Christmas. For two weeks, we've eaten garbage wall to wall. And then you hit the new year. It's like, all right, back to vegetables, right? Back to water, right? Back to exercise. And there's a, a transition time of, of kind of getting back into the, the good thing. But once you've done that for a few days, it's like, oh, this actually feels way better, right? This, this is healthier. This, this just feels better than as much fun as Christmas was. And, and we'll still do that this year. I have no doubt. Uh, but as much fun as that is, it is good to, to get back into a better way. God calls us to a way that is healthier, there's something about God's holiness that is just so pure and so important. And so we are seeking to do things in his way because we really do believe it is the best way. When I talk about following after Jesus is the best way, I'm not just saying that. I actually believe that. I've read the book and I've read it a whole bunch of times. And I'm fully convinced that the way of Jesus is the best possible way for us to live our lives. That is, it's not just perfect because we theologically believe it. When I look at it objectively, I go, this is amazing. If everybody on earth lived like Jesus, then it would be heaven on earth. It would be exactly a perfect and pure and safe place to live. And so as followers of Jesus, we're starting to live that out now. We're not just saying, hey, one day in heaven, we're going to get to taste heaven. We're going to taste heaven here on earth and start living out heaven's ways now. Start influencing the world in heaven now. And we're going to be part of what God is doing as he shares who he is with the world. And so where sin hurts us, where sin damages us, where sin corrupts us, where sin damages our relationships, where sin gets in the way of our walk with others, our walk with God, God calls us away from those things and says, follow after me, follow in my way. So as our little story kicks off today, verse 9, Jesus went out from there. He has just uh, had a moment of forgiveness with the paralyzed man on the mat. And so as he goes on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, follow me he told him Matthew got up and followed him and just the the faith of that like if someone walked into your job tomorrow who you'd never met before and said hey come with me and you're like yeah all right like just the the faith and response of just getting up in that moment and saying I will follow there is something about this person that I need to get closer to and so Matthew leaves it all and follows after Jesus right away Tax collectors, if you've been around church, you've probably heard about them before. They show up in the Gospels a lot. So these were Jewish people who had partnered with the Roman invaders. So Rome had taken over Israel. Uh, Rome was uh, very... Um, you know, polytheistic. They had lots of different gods and they were trying to force their religion on everybody. And so they were really always trying to kind of suppress the Jewish faith and they were very violent. And so Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate, who oversaw as governor uh, the land of Israel at that time was an incredibly violent man. If there was ever a protest, he would just send in the soldiers to deal with it. Like there was no diplomacy. There wasn't a lot of grace. And so Israel's living under this oppression of a, a police state, a very intense, violent police state. They're living under the oppression of their, their religion trying to be crushed and driven out, and they're living without the freedom that they wish they were living in. And the tax collectors were Jewish people who, when Rome said, hey, does anybody here who knows the language want to help us collect money from our victims here? The tax collectors were the one who said, we'll do that, sure. And the way it worked was they would, the Romans would say to them, all right, we need you to, to go to John and Marissa, uh, and we need, you know, eight grand a year out of them in taxes, uh, anything you want to collect above and beyond that, it's none of our business. Just make sure we get our eight grand. And so the tax collectors would come and say, all right, I need 10 grand from John and Marissa, and I'm going to pocket the rest. And so they did that with everybody. And so because of that, they got very, very wealthy. And because of that, they were hated by the Jewish people, as you can imagine. 
Because not only were they partnering with the oppressors, not only were they partnering with the, the pagans who were trying to drive out the Jewish religion, not only were they participating in taking money to fuel the pagans and fuel their wars and fuel their paganry, not only were they doing all of those things, but they were stealing on top of that. And they were stealing from their brothers and sisters. And they were doing it all in the name of the pagan empire. And so they were notoriously corrupt. They were notoriously dishonest. Uh, they were notoriously thought of as just terrible character. They've turned their back on their people. They've turned their back on Jehovah. They've turned their back on everything that is good and on everything that is holy. This is who the tax collectors are. Jesus sees one of them in Matthew and says, perfect, exactly the disciple that I'm looking for. Come and follow me. So Matthew does. He leaves that life behind and he begins to follow after Jesus. He turns away from that behavior and he begins to follow after Jesus. He leaves it all behind. That simple call of follow me. John says this in 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him, in Jesus, must live as Jesus did. And this might be the most important scripture in my life. If, if people have a kind of life verse or a key verse, this one might be mine. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, we actually have to look like Christ. We actually have to be following in the way of Christ. If we're not trying to follow in the way of Christ, then why would we call ourselves Christ followers? If we're going to claim to be a Christian, we actually have to live like Jesus. And so the, the very nature of that is where Jesus says, follow me, we say, yes, I will. I will follow in your teaching. I will follow in your ways. I will follow in your footsteps. That's why this series is so important. If we want to figure out how God is looking at sin and other people in sin, we want to look at Jesus and we want to follow in his ways as we do that. And so as we go through today, there's going to be just a few key points that I'm going to pull out and they're going to inform the whole rest of this series for us. So the first one is this. Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. That's pretty simple and basic, but it's worth stating right off the top. Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. And so we're not just following his ways of teaching. We're following him as a person who leads us in the way that we should go. Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. Next couple of verses, 10 and 11. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, so again, these are the ones who don't know the Lord yet or aren't trying to walk with the Lord, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It doesn't seem as big a deal to us today because we'll, you know, we'll grab coffee with anyone and it's not a big deal to have people over. But at the time, this is shocking, scandalous behavior. And we don't uh, understand it because we're 2,000 years removed. But for a, an ancient Near East meal, just the way they view meals the way they do hospitality, the way the Jewish people looked at that, what Jesus is doing is scandalous beyond scandalous. Because to actually sit and have a meal with someone, to actually be in the same home and sit at the same table, um, th there's a picture of it here where, you know, now we have our serving spoons and everything. But back then, it's like, no, bare hands. So, you know, you took the bread, you ripped off your own piece, you handed it to the next person, they ripped off their piece, you handed it to the next person, like very COVID unfriendly, obviously. And you would share food in a very intimate way you would all dip from the same, you know, there'd be oil that you would dip your bread in and you're dipping from the same thing. Um, and, and with that, there's kind of an intimacy that gets formed. And in their view of the meal, to have someone into your house and to sit at a table with someone is to say, you're family right now, you're family. 
not just we're hanging out, like you're family and we're going to treat you like family. And we see a thread of it, even in the Old Testament, even through Genesis, that when you're having a meal with someone, there's a hospitality rule that says, you know, if you're in someone's house, they're under your protection. They have all the rights and privileges of family. While they're there for that time, we're treating you like family. And so Jesus, as he's sitting with the tax collectors, with the sinners, is raising alarm bells for some of the religious people. Why are you treating these people like family? Why are you having such an intimate expression of hospitality with them? Why are you spending your time with them in this way? In their theology at the time, Jesus is defiling himself. He's making himself dirty. He's making himself sinful by sharing a bowl, by sharing the bread, by sharing a meal, by associating with them. Uh, again, a bit hard for us to comprehend today, but it's, it is a shocking and scandalous thing that he is doing. He is saying, I am joining with these people where they're at, and I am getting into this intimate expression of family with them. And even though they are sinners, I'm not worried about getting defiled by them. And, and so he's spending this time in a way that they don't like. And so the Pharisees of the story, uh, here's a screenshot from The Chosen there. That's Nicodemus on the right. The Pharisees will come back to over and over again because they come up a lot in this area. Uh, the Pharisees were uh, a religious group. They weren't a huge group, but they were a hugely popular group. And they were a group, uh, it has been pointed out over and over and over again, that when you put their values up against evangelical Christians' values today, they're almost identical. So the Pharisees were ones who were saying, we have to get back to the word of God. And we have to get back to the, just the basic teaching of scripture. Everything that we do, we want to measure it against scripture. And we actually want to live out this scripture. And so we want to be ones who read God's word and then obey it. And we want to call sin, sin. And we want to separate ourselves from the world. And we want to make sure that we're pleasing God with our worship. And we want to make sure that we're living out in a way that is consistent with our faith that we see in the scripture. So that's a lot of things that probably most of us in the room would agree with. And it's so easy to make the Pharisees the villains of the Gospels, and they are. I mean, they're the ones who don't agree with Jesus. They're the ones who are going to participate in putting him to death. Uh, So it's easy to make them the villains. In some ways, they are. uh, But that's also a a very basic and I think maybe immature way to look at it because I think we're actually supposed to look at the Pharisees and say, where am I in there? And the Pharisees certainly had a tendency towards judgmentalism, as do a lot of Christians. The Pharisees certainly had a tendency towards self-righteousness, as do a lot of Christians. The Pharisees certainly had a tendency to sort of us versus them thinking, we're the holy ones, and those ones over there are not, as with a lot of Christians. And so let's not dismiss them as, thank God we're not like them, right? Let's look at them and say, Lord, show me where some of those attitudes might be creeping up in me. Where might I be acting like them in this story? So the Pharisees are upset that Jesus is too friendly, He is too friendly with the sinners. Um, And they are looking down on them. And again, it's that whole thing of, you know, they're not tax collectors, right? They are trying to serve the Lord. And so they are just dismissing this group and looking down on them. They are self-righteous and they are condemning. They can't believe Jesus would lower himself to spend that time with them. Let's be careful that we are not looking down on the people who sin differently than we do. That's what the Pharisees are doing in this moment. And so as we, again, just look at some key ideas from the passage, Jesus' engagement with sinners makes some religious people uncomfortable. He was too friendly. 
He was too, too friendly with them. He wasn't being tough enough on the sin. Um, there's nothing in the meal that suggests he is calling them out in their sin. He might have been. The text doesn't tell us that. As we'll see through different stories that we're going to look at, there are times where Jesus is very bold to say to someone, you need to leave this sin right now. There's times where Jesus engages with them and he doesn't even bring up their sin at all. Uh, there's not like a clear formula for how Jesus engages. But something that will be clear is that Jesus' engagement with sinners makes some religious people uncomfortable. They are concerned that he is not being strong enough, maybe, in in defending scripture, concerned that he is not calling them out, concerned that he's not separated enough from them, and so there is something about this that makes Jesus, uh, that makes the enemies of Jesus uncomfortable, and again, don't just say, well, I'm not an enemy of Jesus, say, where am I uncomfortable sometimes? Because I think if we're going to walk in the way of Jesus as it relates to sin, if we're going to follow his example, then there are probably going to be times where we're maybe accused of being too soft on sin because we are trying to love people well in those moments. As we go through this series, I think you're going to be annoyed with me sometimes, by the way. I should have said that at the beginning. And this is one of those things where I say it's a good annoyance because there's stretching going on. And and we need to stretch some of our thinking on some of these things if we're going to be faithful to follow in the way of Jesus. Um, If I'm not stretching you, sometimes I'm not doing my job, right? So there's a lady in the church who says, you make me so mad sometimes. She said with a smile on her face, you make me so mad. And it's because of the stretching. But I think that's a good thing for all of us. It's not always easy, but it's always good. Verse 12 and 13, on hearing this, Jesus said to the Pharisees who are complaining, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And there's just an interesting metaphor, an interesting word picture that Jesus taps into here. This idea of a a doctor has arrived, right? A doctor has arrived. And and there's healing available here for those who need that healing. Um, We're a part of the Western church. We're part of the Western world here in Canada. And the Western church for forever, really, uh, when it comes to scripture and sin and everything, has really emphasized this idea of, of law. And God's word does say this, that, that there are laws and we have broken the law. But in the Western world, we're a law and order society. Ever since the Greeks ran the world, we love order, we love democracy, we love you know, legal systems and structures. So we have laws and we follow the laws. We all agree to follow the laws. The state enforces the laws. And so being a part of this law and order culture in in the Western world, we've really emphasized the scriptures that also talk about sin as, as laws. There's laws, there's commandments, you've broken them. And so the Western church has really emphasized that sin is when we break the law. That's what sin is. And the Bible does say that. The Eastern church, which is just a different culture, different uh, way of looking at the world, would acknowledge all of that, all of that legal talk, but would emphasize passages like this more, that sin is where there is sickness that needs healing. Both are biblical. It's not one or the other, but it's just what's getting emphasized. And so the Eastern church would emphasize we have all sinned. The sin has made us sick. We're in desperate need of healing. We're in desperate need of, of someone to come and save us from that. The Western church would emphasize our, the, the legal standing, that the laws have been broken. God is just. He needs to be satisfied. And that's that emphasis. Again, absolutely biblical. It's just what's being emphasized. The Eastern church would emphasize you have sinned. The sin has made you sick. You need healing. And that's, that's what Jesus has come to do. So without losing one or the other, we can hold both of those together. That when we sin, we are breaking God's law. Our sin also makes us sick, and we need a doctor. 
and a great physician has come in Jesus that says, I am coming to heal what you have done to yourself. And so the downside of that kind of legal view of sin is that it can, it can really spur on a kind of works-based emphasis. If you broke God's law, so just work harder on not breaking it. Right? It's clear, and you've broken it, so work harder on not breaking it. Our human strength always runs out. The Eastern emphasis, the part of it that I like is, we recognize that we are sinners, we have broken the law, and yet there needs to be transformation that happens. That's ultimately how we get out of our sin, is the Holy Spirit changes us and makes us different. As he changes us and heals us and frees us and makes us different, uh, that's better than just saying work harder and harder and harder to try and do this on your own that the Holy Spirit comes. And so again, not one or the other, but both and. And in this picture, Jesus is acknowledging, hey, there is sickness here that needs healing. He's not saying sin isn't sin. He's not saying this isn't serious. He's saying there is a sickness here and it needs to be healed. And so Jesus knew that he was the solution to this. And so as Jesus is uh, in Luke's gospel, you know, drawing close to sinners and spending time with sinners, he would get attacked for it by the Pharisees all the time. Uh, Jesus would put it this way in Luke 7, 34. He says, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. John was uh, a Nazarite and he followed uh, just very, very strict rules. He ate what he could find in the wilderness. He only drank water. So John the Baptist came very, very strict in how he lived out his holiness. And the Pharisee said, he's demon possessed. He's acting like a crazy person. Right? He's living out in the wilderness. He's got just you know, cheap clothes, and he's just eating the bugs that he finds. This man's crazy. But the Son of Man, Jesus, comes eating. He eats food. He drinks wine. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so it's Jesus saying, you can't win, right? No matter what your holiness looks like, someone's going to be criticizing you for it. Out of his sense of what God wanted, John the Baptist chose a very strict and difficult way of living out in the wilderness, a very, you know, aesthetically um, displeasing way to live by any standards. And just, I'm going to just wear the skins that I can find from animals, and I'm going to eat the bugs I find on the ground, and I'm going to eat the honey that I find in the honeycomb, and, and I'm just going to drink water. And they went, wow, that's a crazy way to live out your faith. And then Jesus comes and he feasts and he drinks wine. And it's like, oh, look at this guy drinking all the wine. Look at this guy feasting, unlike John the Baptist. And it's just like, well, you can't win. Uh, so you're, you know, Jesus is saying you live out your convictions as you feel that. But Jesus wasn't concerned at all about being accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That didn't bother him. He wasn't concerned about looking soft on sin by the way he loved the sinners around him. He wasn't worried about that accusation. He just said, yep, that's what I get accused of. Uh, he doesn't fight back on it. He doesn't re redirect it. He doesn't correct it. Uh, he acknowledges that, yeah, that's what I'm accused of because when you hang out with them and you have meals with them, then that's what you're going to get accused of. It never seemed to bother him that he was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was okay with that label that people put on them. I heard a preacher say once, it's so easy uh, when it comes to walking with Jesus to kind of lean to, to one side or the other, as we've already talked about. And he said, you know, when it comes to Scripture, there are people who look at the Bible very conservatively, and there are people who look at it more liberally, and the conservatives tend to take it more literally, maybe, and more seriously. The liberals tend to take it more uh, symbolically and, and look at it in different ways. And likewise with sin and with people, that there are conservative ways to approach people and, and liberal ways to approach people. And he said, from what I understand, Jesus has a very, very, very conservative view of Scripture, 
right? He takes it as, as crucial. He takes it as important. He takes it as the word of God. He says, we need to take this seriously. We need to live this out seriously. And part of that is calling sin, sin, which Jesus always did. And so he has a very, very conservative view of the Bible. And yet he then loves people like a radical liberal. And the point was, if we can approach the scripture like a conservative, but love people like a radical liberal and hold those two things together without compromising either side, then we're probably getting somewhere close to how Jesus lived his life. And honestly, it's easier just to say, I'm a conservative in every way, or I'm a liberal in every way, and not try to hold those things together. But I think that's what we're supposed to do. And I think it's just the, the difficulty and the challenge of it for sure. It's easier just to lean towards our natural tendencies of, of wherever we want to go. But I think if we can do that, if we can say we take the Bible seriously, we believe it is the inspired infallible word of God, we believe that what it says is good is good, and what it says is sin is sin, and we're trying our best to live out what that looks like, while at the same time saying Jesus had no problem being accused of being a friend of sinners, and he loved them and hung out with them in such a way that they were actually drawn to him, and the love that he showed to them, and yet he never compromised his biblical beliefs, and yet he never compromised his love for people. He somehow managed to figure that out together. Does that make sense? I think that's, that's it. I think it's we are we're taking the Bible seriously and taking the call to love people seriously, and we're not just going to dismiss one side or the other. We're going to hold both together because that's where we find Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus, if you haven't noticed, uh, sometimes confounds our expectations or easy ways of figuring stuff out. Jesus asks tough questions. Jesus redefines things in the Gospels. Jesus challenges the way we think. Uh, that's part of it, and that's part of getting to know him better and following after him, learning more and more together his ways. Uh, Luke 5.31 is uh, Luke's version of the story we're reading today. There's a little added line there that I think is important. Jesus answers the Pharisees, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that line isn't in Matthew's version. I'm come to call sinners to repentance. So again, Jesus isn't compromising anything. And Jesus is acknowledging that there are sinners here. He's acknowledging that sin is sin. He's calling them to repentance. Repentance, I've used the picture before, uh, means to change direction. Right? You're on a path that's not good, and, and where sin leads us to bad places, we want to turn away from that bad path and head in a better way, head in God's way. He's here to call sinners to turn, to change. And so in terms of the, the key points, again, uh, Jesus calls sin what it is and calls us away from it. So there's no doubting that part, is that Jesus never sins, never encourages sin, never endorses sin, and where he sees sin, he typically calls people to turn away from it. He doesn't do it specifically every time, as we see as we'll go through. Um, but Jesus calls sin what it is and calls us away from it. And then in that passage, Jesus had also said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And as he says that, he's quoting Hosea 6.6. 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, says the Lord, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And so Hosea, if you go read Hosea chapter 6, it's the story of Israel who is going through the motions of religion, but not actually loving God not actually worshiping him well, not actually living out his ways. Uh, they're showing up, they're offering their sacrifices, they're doing the things the Bible tells them to do, but their heart isn't right, and they're just kind of going through those religious motions. And so Jesus ties that into this story and says, hey, Pharisees, go read Hosea chapter 6. Go read the story of the people who think they're doing well because they're going through the motions, but whose hearts are far away from me and are not actually living this out the way that I would like you to live this out. 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Two sides of this. One is God's heart, and we see this in the prophets where God says, I long to be merciful to people. I long to to rise up and show you compassion. I long to forgive your sins. Uh, A God who loves his people to that extent. Um, And it's not the sacrifices that make that happen. It's not the sacrifices themselves. uh, Because if you do the sacrifices, if you do the worship, if you do the obedience without your heart being involved, then you're just going through the religious motions. It doesn't mean anything. God's looking for our hearts and our devotion. So God desires to be merciful to his people. He also desires for us to be merciful to one another. And the New Testament makes this crystal clear that the mercy that you have received from God, you are to be merciful towards others. The grace you have received from God, the patience you've received from God, you are to demonstrate those things to other people. So God is longing to be merciful. Uh, He's calling for repentance. He's calling for people to turn from their sin. He's wanting that to be what happens here. And that's what Jesus is wanting as well as he's engaging with different sinners throughout the story. So Jesus is both merciful and holy. He is both the same. And again, easy to lean towards one or the other. We're not wanting to do that. We're wanting to hold both of those together, which is admittedly harder. But Jesus is both holy and merciful. And he does not ever compromise his holiness. And he's also not compromising his mercy. He is both together at the same time. The irony, of course, as the Pharisees are looking down, look at these tax collectors and sinners, is that the Pharisees are also sinners. Right? They are also sinners. They're not doing those sins, but they are also sinners. And they are not acknowledging their own sin. They are not acknowledging that they too have fallen short of God's word. They're not acknowledging that they too have things to work on. Their bias is just making them say, well, those sins are particularly bad in our mind, and so Jesus shouldn't be hanging out with those people. And I don't think it's even occurring to them like, well, maybe Jesus wouldn't want to come to your house then by that same logic, right? So they are completely focused on other people's sins. Um, in counseling terms, we call this deflection, right? Something, an accusation comes and you, well, it's not me, it's them. And you start to look at what other people are doing and that way you don't have to deal with your own stuff. Jesus would speak really clearly to this issue in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. This is key, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the way that you talk about other people's sins, the way that you condemn other people's sins, the way you look down on other people's sins, that's all coming back on you in your sin when God is judging you. So why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So it's acknowledged like both eyes need to be clean, right? Both eyes have a problem. So it's not saying we look at someone else and just pretend that there's no sin there. Like we can see sin in other people sometimes easier than we can see it in ourselves. And sometimes I heard a preacher say recently, like, we got to get mad at sin, and we got to get mad at this group, and we got to get mad at that group. They're in sin. And I read this passage, and I say, yeah, you can get mad at sin, but for your sake, you better start with getting mad at your own. For your sake, for your judgment. If you're going to get mad, you better start with your own. If you're going to get self-righteous, you better start with your own. If you're going to condemn, you better start with your own. And you better be aware that however you judge others, that judgment's coming back on you. So I tend to say I need patience, and so I'm going to be patient. 
not denying sin with other people, but I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be as patient as I would want to be if I was working through something. The golden rule calls us to that. So we certainly are not ignoring, but the, the other point of this is that I'm supposed to be dealing with my own stuff so that I can help you deal with yours. The goal of this story is to clean eyes, not just me getting my eye clean, my eye clean so that I can help you. And it's very, very easy to condemn sin in other people and not lift a finger to help them. And that's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, deal with your own stuff. And as you're dealing with your own stuff, that's happening in part so you can help others. Purity is what we want for everybody. And so if we're going to get mad, let's start with ourselves. If we're going to get frustrated, let's start with ourselves. Let's start there. And then as we are dealing with our stuff, as healing is coming to our stuff, as we're growing in our stuff, then we are free and we are able to help others deal with their stuff. And that is the point, that we are all moving towards purity. But that's really hard to do if I'm ignoring what's in my own eye and just focusing entirely on what's in yours. And if I'm just getting angry at what I see over there instead of dealing with my own stuff. The last part of this as Jesus is, is sitting at this table is that Jesus meets people exactly where they are. And he doesn't want them staying where they are. And he's calling them away from where they are if they're in a bad place. But he meets them where they are. And I think we sometimes feel like you got to clean up your life first before you can fully experience Jesus or before you can come to church or, or before you can take steps. Jesus meets people exactly where they are. And he isn't always okay with where they are, but he meets them there. And he has a meal with them there. He hangs out with them there. He associates with them there. And then as we see, we'll see in story after story, there is a change that comes. There is a call that comes that says, hey, now let's, let's get out of this behavior and let's choose a better way. Let's choose a healthier way. Let's choose the holy way. But he meets them. He doesn't go to the table and just start yelling and condemning. He doesn't go on the table and start issuing proclamations of judgment right away. Like he just sits with them and he shares a meal with them. He does that so often, apparently, that he gets the nickname Friend of Sinners because he's willing to be at the table with them. And he says, hey, that's where the doctor needs to be, right? The doctor needs to be there. They need Jesus. We need Jesus. And we need to, to allow for some time for people to meet him uh, as they are wrestling through their own sin and figuring out what that is. Come on up, worship team. We're getting ready to wrap up here in just a moment. Here at Meadowbrook, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. And again, we focus on those next steps in three ways, upward, inward, and outward. Upwardly, taking our next steps in our walk with him, our connection with him, our communion with him. Inwardly, as we take our next steps to deal with our stuff, to let him work on our stuff. Outwardly, in how we're treating other people and how we are walking with them and, and engaging with the world around us. So, um, so we're going to just, I'll briefly just recap here. The, the five key things, these are going to inform the whole rest of the series for us. So number one, Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. We are called to be like Jesus. Number two, Jesus' engagement with sinners makes some religious people uncomfortable. So if we're going to follow in his ways, it might get a little uncomfortable, and that's okay. It was uncomfortable for him. We're not better than him. Jesus calls sin what it is and calls us away from it. So there's no compromising of God's word and how Jesus lives it out. Jesus never sins. He never encourages sin. He calls sin what it is and calls people away from it. Jesus is both holy and merciful at the same time. And his heart of mercy is there, and, and his heart of holiness is there. Uh, we know from Scripture that his, his patience does have limits, that there is a point where discipline can come or judgment can come if change doesn't happen. But his heart is holy, and as the prophets tell us, he desires to be merciful. That's his first choice, if people will turn away. And then finally, Jesus meets people exactly where they are. He doesn't want them to stay there, but he meets them there. 
He'll share a meal with them there. He will associate himself with them there, wherever they are at. So in terms of your next steps, I think today the next steps are more just kind of reflection. I don't think there's necessarily an action step. If God's speaking to you something you need to do, then you should do it, of course. But in terms of what are your next steps, I think it's just, let's just start to reflect on this and and give this some thought this week. Um, What are your attitudes towards your sin? What are your attitudes towards sin that you see in other people? Are there specific sins that you like to lock on and focus on as, as worse than your sin or a people group or, or just a, you know, a situation that it's easy to pass judgment on, it's easy to elevate yourself on, it's easy to say, well, I don't do that, I'm not perfect, but at least I don't, dot, dot, dot. Like, where is your attitude at in all of this? And where's Jesus at in your life, in your walk with sin, in your desire to be free, in your desire to choose better, in your desire to find healing, in your desire to find holiness? I think this week is just, let's just reflect and meditate on these things. Say, Lord, show me what this means. Show me where you're at. What are you saying to me? Where do I need to shift my attitude? Where do I need to shift an action? Where do I need to reach out to somebody? Where do I need to get on my face and repent of something? Where do I need some accountability? Whatever the case may be. We'll give it some reflection this week. And then as we go through the series, this was a bit of a just a foundation laying message today. We're going to get into specific stories and more specific application from here. But would you stand with me, please, as we always like to close off with worship. We have heard the word, and now we want to respond with worship as we worship God together, and then we'll wrap up with prayer. Let's sing.